2. There is a connection to Leviticus, which I'll explain a little bit on, further on. One of my kids' favorite places is a hotel called the Steamboat Inn. It's in Lancaster County, and it's, it's built like a steamboat. And it's got a little moat around the side, and it's got spray on the front. It's, it's got a great indoor pool and a beautiful playground and a large pond with ducks and koi. What isn't there for little kids to like? And so we, we went in October. It had been two years because my cancer had made that impossible previously. And we stay overnight, and then we begin packing up and... A normal division is Elizabeth packs up and I load the car. And so I'm taking the cart and Sammy's old enough that he's coming and helping me and we're, we're getting trips and then we come back, back in. There's one last trip and Elizabeth's just getting everything ready to go. So we close the door and I'm helping her and two or three minutes in I say, Dear, where's Sammy? Where's Tommy? Where's Tommy? Now our kids are not wanderers so we don't have our heads on a swivel. But, but it's a small room and I notice we have three kids and I see two. She says, I don't know. We look in the room. I, I open the door down the long hall. I don't see him. We look in the room. I, I run down to the, the front desk. I don't see him. I run back. No Tommy. And so now, now I'm in full parent panic mode. And I, I run back to the desk. I decide left or right. Well, we went outside left. So I'm going to go outside left where the car is. Do I go out left or right? I go out right. Go towards the, do- the car. And, and there's a, a maintenance man saying, hey, hey, uh, you looking for this little guy? And, and there's Tommy just sitting on the sidewalk. The door had closed, and instead of knocking, he, he just decided to go exploring. Not surprisingly, a couple, couple days later, I had a dream. It was pretty fanciful. I was in an airplane, and it was in flames, and it was going down. And somehow I was helping people off the airplane. I don't even think parachutes were involved. But, you know, we, we got off the airplane, and it crashes in this fiery ball. And all of a sudden, I realized, Tommy's still on the plane. He didn't make it, thinking about the steamboat. And, <gasps> and I go to the nursery. Parents' worst nightmare, to lose a son. Well, we're taking a detour from Leviticus, but this passage is closer than it might first appear. We've, we've finished the first half thematically of Leviticus. The idea, remember, the theme for the book is that you are delivered so that you can be devoted and brought into the fellowship of God and his presence. And the Day of Atonement in chapter 16 was that climax of deliverance. And we walked through all of explaining the atonement, the four P's, right? That you have to be purified. There's, there's a penalty that has to be paid, a price to remove the damage. God has to be pleased with you or propitiation if you like the longer P. And I've returned to those themes repeatedly. And I pray that they're rooted in your minds and hearts and, and you're convinced dead to right that you need a sacrifice for your sin. And you're amazed for all those things that have, that have that go on in your redemption. They're absolutely critical. Um, otherwise, you go the way of progressive Christianity, which in many cases is not Christianity at all. Last Sunday, we heard about liberalism. That's progressive Christianity. is the new liberalism. But there's another danger as well as we're considering the atonement. And that is that you understand Jesus' death for, your, for you as an atonement simply as an equation. It's a theological necessary necessity. But it's not a personal reality that grips you. Jesus' death for you is not just incredible by what it accomplishes, those, those four Ps and all of that, but, but even more so that the Trinity would plan this great redemption from all time. That God would send his son to die for you. In this account, Abraham, uh, God proves the faith of Abraham as he calls him. But he also gives you insight into his own sacrifice that he provides for you and his son. 
And so the idea tonight is we're going to be going through this chapter is I want you to behold the depths of the Father's love for the agony of Abraham. As, as you go through this, not just see, to behold, to look, to, to, to contemplate, to meditate the depths of the Father's love through the agony of Abraham. So let's pray and then we'll go through Scripture. Father, now prime our hearts in a passage that, that stands high among the story of Abraham that's, that's also one of the climactic passages. So we see the, the, the contours of, of your story, of your drama. We know that it's real and that it's for us that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's begin. We'll be going through this sections at a time. We'll work through the first 19 verses. Verse 1. And after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Now, these words shatter Abraham's world. Right? This is a test. It's very clearly a test of Abraham's obedience. Verse one is explicit, but and that does help explain some of those difficult questions. We're not going to answer tonight. Why would God tell Abraham to kill his son? But Abraham doesn't know it's a test. And this command takes a stake and drives it through his heart. To kill your son is bad enough, but worse, this brings into question all the promises which start back in the beginning of Abraham's story. Chapter 12, 25 years earlier, when Abraham was 75, God appeared to him and, and said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's Genesis 12, 1. And you remember, God takes his time in that promise. In fact, as you follow Abraham through his life, the, the years pass, time drags, it seems like God might be holding back. God gives Abraham wealth, but no children. He gets richer and richer, but not one son. And back then it was a son that mattered. It, it, children were highly prized. That's how you were valued. If you had wealth, but no one to pass it on to you, you were worth nothing. And so through this all, Abraham clings to the promise. He yearns for this son. You know how the story goes. Abraham and Sarah are not getting any younger, so they decide to help God out. Sarah gives Abraham his maid, her maid Hagar as a child, as to bear a child for her, and it's very common in, in that time. And so finally, a child, 86 years old, and Ishmael comes, which means God hears. Perhaps God will use Ishmael to fulfill his promises to Abraham. And what happens? God appears and says, Ishmael is not going to be the child of promise. I am going to give you a son from Sarah. And so when Abraham is a hundred years old, God keeps his promise. Sarah gives birth to a son, Isaac. And then comes this test. There are those times when you hear this terrible news of disaster. If you're old enough, you remember 9-11. It, just, it freezes your chest. The death of a loved one. Your heart goes numb. Your back of your neck tingles. This is one of those times. And he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering. It's worth noting one of the Hebrew verbs here. When he says go, it's go with respect to yourself. The Hebrew is lech lecha. To my knowledge, the only other place this phrase occurs in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 12.1, where God says to Abraham, go, leave your family. 
And so with this command, the Lord brings Abraham first full circle. Abraham, you gave up everything to follow me. You left your family, your culture, your home. Now will you give me your son? Put yourself in Abraham's place. What do you make of this? You've spent the last 35 years following this great God who called you to be his own. You've, you've learned to trust him, not to take matters into your own hands. And finally, when you have this son to fulfill the promises, and to sacrifice him? In one fell swoop, God is asking Abraham to kill his beloved son and cut off all hope to those promises. And to compound the pain, God just told Abraham to send his son Ishmael away. And now Isaac, God is asking Abraham to die, in effect, alone in childness and old age. The passage doesn't spend time on Abraham's emotional state. Rather, it focuses on his obedience. Verse 3, right after this difficult command, Abraham obeys. So listen to this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Despite what Abraham was feeling, he obeyed. And immediately, early in the morning, no delays, no distractions, he gathers his servants, Isaac, provisions, and off they go. doesn't say much about the three-day trip, the story, but put yourself in Abraham's place. How each step toward him as he contemplated being one foot closer to the death of his son. There is at times that impending dread of a terrible thing drawing nearer and nearer until the third day when Abraham's heart sinks and he sees the mountain come into view in the distance and he knows this is the one that God wants. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now imagine a camera panning over the slope of a Canaanite mountain, and in the middle we see these two solitary figures trekking up together. The story suggests silence as they travel, the two of them together. What was Abraham thinking as they were walking side by side? His his last words to his servants before give us insight into his thoughts. Abraham hasn't told anyone about what's to happen. Clearly, he plans to carry out God's command. Yet his statement to his, his servants show he knows God to be faithful and reasons by faith that somehow Isaac must come back to him. Doesn't mean that Abraham wasn't worried that he whistled up the mountain. No, we don't work that way. He knows the reality of animal sacrifices. But even more, every human faith has its doubt. Okay, God told me to kill him. If I kill him, God must raise him. But what if he doesn't? Ever felt that way? And they continue up the mountain. And Isaac breaks the silence. He's old enough to know something is wrong here. And so he asks that simple, agonizing question, Where is the lamb 
It's the last thing he wants to answer. It's the forefront on what's burning on his mind. And listen to Abraham's turmoil mixed with faith as he replies, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's a double-edged statement, isn't it? God will provide. Will it be, my son? Once again, we see the two of them walking together. Notice the refrain. So they went, both of them, together. It appears twice in verse 6 and 8. Points out to us the aloneness, the finality of this last little truck as we see father and son walking in what is to be, humanly speaking, their last time together. There is a heart-rending sorrow of two kindred souls together who are about to separate. I've seen it on the faces of military families as, as one of the spouses or the father or the mother is about to, to board an airplane, to, to go into deployment, perhaps away into to life-threatening combat. There's that poignant sense of lingering urgency, wanting that moment to extend forever and ever, and knowing that the time of separation is at hand. What else can the aching heart of the father be feeling as he and Isaac draw closer and closer to the mountain child? How little time I've had with my son. Must the mountaintop come so quickly? And then they are there. They reach the top, and as we reach that dreadful spot, the story drags out the actions leading up to the sacrifice. In the text, the suspense builds. Abraham constructs the altar. He arranges the wood. He binds Isaac, his son. He sets him on the altar. He stretches out his hand. He takes the knife to slaughter him. He's on the verge of taking his life when he hears, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. There's an angel that says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of, instead of his son. So at the last moment, God sends his angel, his messenger, to spare Isaac, and he graciously provides this substitute as a, a ram. You see, God's been faithful. And you can imagine how Abraham cut the ropes and cradled his son in his arms and wept for joy. He had him back from life, resurrection in a, in a figurative sense. But, but that's not all. Once and for all, God confirms his promise to Abraham. Reading on in verse 15, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring... So all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In effect, God is concluding Abraham's story and saying, all the promises of my covenant, which I gave to you, will come to pass because you've obeyed me. Now we have here one of the most emotionally powerful narratives in the Old Testament. And when you encounter something like this, you must ask, why the sacrifice? Why the drama? Why did God put Abraham through all of that emotional turmoil only to provide the sacrifice at the end? Now, there's, there's two reasons, I'd say, in the text. The one is a test to prove Abraham's faith. And the second is you see more developed throughout Scripture to just demonstrate the Lord's mercy. Tonight, we're going to focus on that second part 
that through this test, God provided a lamb. And even Abraham recognizes the mercy of the Lord because the Lord gives him this resounding commendation. One of the most uh, one of the most stirring commendations the Lord gives a human. Uh, But Abraham calls the mountain, not Abraham obey, but God will provide. The Hebrew is the word uh, ra'ah, to see. It's a very common word. It's used many different ways. Here it means God will see to it. Ever done that? Someone say, I'll, I'll see to it, that it's done. God will look to make sure that it is done. Here this passage looks forward to Leviticus. There are here direct connections to the Day of Atonement. First, all Israel is represented in Isaac. If Isaac dies, there is no Israel. This trial is a life, this is a trial of life and death um, for Isaac, which, which foreshadows the Day of Atonement when, when Israel will be covered. Um, second, Abraham is told to offer Isaac on Mount Moriah. Second Chronicles 3.1 says that Solomon builds the temple on Mount Moriah. So you see the connections then to the temple and the tabernacle where the Lord dwells in the Day of Atonement. Finally, there are some very clear word links that some scholars have pointed out. Leviticus 8 and 9, which is the ordination, the beginning of the priests. And Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, are the only three passages where the words burnt offering, ram, and then the Hebrew word to see appear along with this passage. It is as if Moses is connecting these two events, Abraham's sacrifice and the Day of Atonement. Now, clearly there's differences. Abraham's sacrifice is a test. It's, it's not explicitly an atonement. The Day of Atonement, on the, time, on the other hand, is a full redemption. There's cleansing and removing of sin. But here's what's similar. Just as God spares Isaac by providing a lamb, he also spares Israel through the blood of the sacrifice. And this connection then helps you understand not only the Day of Atonement better, but then looking forward to your redemption in Jesus. Abraham's ram demonstrates God's mercy, but it also points forward to your greater final substitute. What does John the Baptist say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We read in Revelation 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see the beauty of God's mercy here as it unfolds through history. He he provides a ram to Abraham to keep his promises. But that very ram points to the life that he will give. And, And here you see the love of God demonstrated in a unique way. And this is what should make your hearts burn. Because on Mount Moriah, as you're, you're walking up with Abraham, you experience with Abraham the first-hand agonizing prospect of losing his only son, his beloved son. The, the, the author deliberately lingers over the sacrifice and the separation. He repeats that particular word to make his point, son. Isaac is the only son whom Abraham loves. And your heart goes out to Abraham. To lose a child is a pain like no other. And God knows that. One commentator suggests that in the Hebrew text of Genesis 22, the way God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac is the way of a superior who commands something of his subordinate, knowing full well the cost. And one of the reasons God has put his, this story in his story is because he knows how much it costs to give up his son. 
Now, we need to be careful here. And our, our, our doctrinal standards say God is without parts and passions. Right? He is not jerked around by his emotions as we are. Uh, last week, I was very tired, and, and my kids were not obeying me as quickly as they should have. But I, I, started to, I started to yell at them just a little bit. And it was not because they were doing something that was a little dangerous, which it was. It was because they weren't doing what I wanted them to do. And I was upset, and I responded sinfully. And so I repented. God never has a sinful type of emotion. Um, we, we never want to give that or ascribe that to God. But yet, it's very clear, this is a costly sacrifice from the Lord. And he does relate to us as Father. And so there is an analogy here. And one of the reasons, I believe, he lets us see this story is because we see a glimpse of the depth of his love in the agony of Abraham. The reason the test hurt Abraham so much was because of the cost, because of his love for Isaac. Isaac brought him joy. He was the fulfillment of God's promises. Abraham had those natural loving bonds of a proud father. You see this and ask, how much more in the mystery of the Trinity did it cost for the God of the universe to give up his son? And you approach God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in perfect harmony before time began. Infinite love. Infinite fellowship together. Intimate intimacy. And then the Father willingly sent His Son to the earth to be the Savior of the world. And unlike Abraham, there was no voice from heaven. There was no ram on the thorns. Instead, on that mountain outside the city, the King of Kings was nailed to a cross. And the Father turned His back on Him and cut off fellowship with Him. That perfect communion that He had. And He poured out His just wrath on His Son so that Jesus called out, taking the punishment, you deserve my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here on the cross, the Father shows his mercy and love in a way like no other. He gave his very son to die in the place of sinners who deserve God's just sentence to hell. If your faith in Jesus rests in him, then this ugly, wretched cross is the most beautiful expression of joy that you can ever behold. The Apostle Paul put it this way. But God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. People of God, look to the cross and experience the Father's love. It is not simply enough for you to know that Jesus died for you. That God loves you. You must meditate on it. You must delight in it. Constantly remind yourself of his overflowing goodness. Jonathan Edwards said, reflecting on spiritual truths, it is one thing to know that honey is exceedingly sweet. It's another to taste it and know that it's sweet. And so you must savor the mercy of the Lord that he's granted to you. The, the great expense of your, your redemption as well as the extent of what it accomplishes in your worship, in your prayers, in your meditations, your actions, they flow out of this heart-stopping reality. The Apostle Paul, again in Romans 8, looks back to Abraham's test when he reflects on, on who, who we are in Christ and how the Father's great sacrifice should shape your attitude. As he's talking about the glory of salvation and redemption accomplished, he says in Romans 8, 31 and 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?
If you're here tonight, I'm guessing this is not the first time you've heard this message. You may have heard it a hundred times. You may have heard it a thousand times. Does it bring a smile to your heart? Does it make you sing? That God has provided for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, his son. There are times when you must simply walk up to the cross and stand in silence, humbled by the sheer immensity of your Father's love and mercy. That God has provided the Lamb. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that your scripture is many things. It is history. It, it is story. It is teaching. It is poetry. It is prophecy. It is gospel. In all of these ways, both complex and simple, you bring home to us the fact that Jesus is our, our sacrifice and your satisfaction. We thank you that this message tonight is, is so simple that the youngest among us here can understand it. And so profound that the most thoughtful and mature can and will spend a lifetime rejoicing in it. And so take and move our hearts as you send us out to serve you this week. May your gospel be at work in us. For the sake of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, for we pray this in his name.